3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. It is, oh my gosh, I'm looking at the time, not the date. What day? <laughs> it is a Thursday. But the date. The 8th. The 8th yep. of December. <laughs> That's right. We're all here and we're all normal. Hello, Inez and Leela. <laughs> super normal or super fun. Yeah, we're just having a normal one in here, having a great time. Uh, before we went to air, we were just talking about instant karma. Um, so hopefully uh, you're all out there staying vigilant. Make sure, uh, you know, make sure nobody's out there trying to prank you, but also don't try and get yourself as well. Don't be too cocky is the lesson here. Never have too good of a time because it'll come back and bite you. Mm, according to the stars, it is a spicy week. So watch oh. out. People. Okay. Well, oh, no. <laughs> I don't think I can handle any more masala in my <laughs> week. But uh, we have a big show for you today, as always. Um, who wants to kick it off? I can go. Up next, <laughs> oh, we first will up. hear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, first up, we are. Uh, there's a standby uh, called, sorry, up here we hear from, I'm having a stroke on air. Um, we will hear from Homes Not Prisons, a series looking at the carceral responses to poverty airing at midday on Thursdays. For the last month, members of the Homes Not Prisons campaign have joined us on the 3CR airwaves to share their stories and encourage community alternatives to incarceration. Today, we will hear from Nina. And after that, we're going to hear from Dr. John Day, who's an adjunct senior research fellow at the ARC Center for Excellence in Coral Reef Studies at James Cook University. And I got to catch up with John last week to discuss a recently published reactive monitoring mission report by UNESCO's World Heritage Center and the International Union for the Conservation of Nature based on a March 2022 investigation into the health of the Great Barrier Reef. John's got a lot of expertise in this area in world heritage management and also in conservation on the Reef, so it was a really interesting discussion. I'm looking forward to playing it back for you. And then we will be joined by Tim Benfato, an organizer for the United Workers Union. Tim joins us to speak about food manufacturing wor- workers from the Pampas in Melbourne who rallied outside Baker's Delight to highlight the company's unwillingness to provide secure work. And finally, we will be joined by Executive Director Fiona Nelson from the Australian Centre for International Justice, or ACIG. And Fiona joins us to discuss ACIG's recent report assessing Australia's response to the Afghanistan inquiry. The report, released on November 29, found that Australia has failed to action recommendations to redress on redress for victims of war crime by Australian Special Forces. Kelsapriz. Is it Kelsapriz? Is that how you say that? Anyway, 
very unsurprising that Australia has failed to action these recommendations. And I think it'll be really interesting to hear about, um, you know, these options for redress, because I feel like there was a lot of coverage of the Brereton report, but not necessarily mm-hmm. much coverage of what's actually going to happen to folks who have been, um, you know, so significantly harmed by the Australian Defence Forces. Yeah, so yeah, that's a big part of the problem. There's been a whole lot of silence, so yeah. looking forward to finding out what's going on. <laughs> totally. Um, so that is all coming up next on Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.04 in the morning. The sun is shining, or at least it's attempting to. So get your picnic blankets out and gather your mates and stock up on your summer wine. So excited that our summer wine fundraiser is back. This year we're selling delicious wine generously provided by 3CR supporter Jamsheed Wines. Just $20 per bottle or you can snap up even more of a bargain by buying in a dozen or half dozen lots and mixes. Order online 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or call the station on 94198377 during business hours. Jamsheed Wines is a 3CR supporter. These are the news headlines for Thursday, the 8th of December. The Royal Commission into RoboDebt continues, with the inquiry revealing government officials were given the opportunity to co-write a federal watchdog's report into the scheme. An ombudsman investigated the harmful Centrelink debt recovery program at the height of the scandal in 2017, but its final report failed to sufficiently raise concerns about the program. The report was a major blow for critics of the RoboDebt scheme, and the Commission heard that it was often used to defend the scheme by then-Human Services Minister Alan Tudge. The Commission also heard that former Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who's due to give evidence to the Commission next week, was warned that the robo-debt scheme would be illegal prior to its launch. Also in news headlines this week, Indonesia has this week brought in sweeping changes to the criminal code, including a ban on sex outside of marriage and measures designed to suppress certain political views. The new laws mean people will be subject to criminal prosecution and up to 12 months in prison if they are seen to be engaging in sexual intercourse outside of marriage or cohabitating. Laws against religious blasphemy have also been broadened, along with increased implementation of Sharia-based laws, which advocates say is of particular concern for people with diverse sexual orientations and gender identities and expression. The laws also mean jail time for anyone who is associated with an organisation that follows Marxist-Leninist ideology and for spreading communist thought. The changes are expected to be ratified in the coming weeks and will also apply to tourists who visit Indonesia. In other news, a new union's New South Wales report has found that migrant wage theft is running rife under a system that threatens to deport those who speak out. With reports of illegal pay rates offered for thousands of job ads, more than one-third of migrant workers surveyed reported being paid a lower salary because of their visa type and more than one-quarter saying they received lesser salaries because of their nationality. 
Unions New South Wales called for greater protections for migrant workers, including a visa system that allows workers with outstanding claims to remain in the country with working in rights until their claim has been settled. And finally, in headlines, a climate activist in New South Wales has been sentenced to a 15-month jail term with a non-parole period of eight months. The disproportionate sentence comes after new laws were introduced in New South Wales earlier this year to crack down on protests that, quote, cause inconvenience, end quote. The activist, Violet Coco, was involved in a protest on the Sydney Harbour Bridge to raise awareness on climate change. The protest blocked one lane of traffic for around 25 minutes. Advocates condemn the sentence and the new legislation, saying that visibility and disruption have long been hallmarks of effective nonviolent protest. The Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Association and Peaceful Assembly at the United Nations expressed alarm at the prison term, saying peaceful protesters should never be criminalized or imprisoned. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 8th of December, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. But I thought maybe we wanted to reflect a little bit on some of these headlines because, boy, is there a lot in there. I think with the with the second headline talking about uh, Indonesia's changes to its criminal code. First of all, it's just so important to remember that so much of the brutal crackdowns that are happening in Indonesia are really intensified and, um, you know, violent mechanisms tested out in the first instance in West Papua. And so we have to always remember to stay in solidarity with West Papuan folks fighting for freedom and independence. And it was Independence Day on, um, sorry, the raising of the Morning Star flag on uh, the 1st of December. And um, I think it it is really concerning seeing that there's this crackdown on sex outside of marriage, but also um, on uh, communism, because it's just really, um, I guess, a reminder, an echo of the sort of anti-communist purge and mass crackdown in Indonesia in the 1960s, um, yeah, in the mid-1960s, where there was a a mass killing of communists at at that time. So I think international solidarity is is really important here as well. Um, Yeah, did you guys want to add anything? Yeah, I think what struck me is that it just feels so close to home. And I guess a lot of people who live here in this continent see the Malay Indo archipelago as part of home or, you know, have heritage and family there. And so, yeah, this is definitely something that's going to impact a lot of people living right here. Yeah, totally. And I think, um, you know, this is why it's so important to yeah, – yeah, I understand as well that, you know, these laws are going to be imposed on tourists that uh, travel to the country, but I think it's so important to be in solidarity on the basis of the fact that people there are going to be affected. Um, yeah, so that is our headlines for this week. And, of course, if we can bring you any further coverage um, of these issues, we'll do our very best to do that. But once again, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. Environmental Film Festival Australia invites you to EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema, a one-day cinema event celebrating Indigenous perspectives on climate, ecology, culture and custodianship. EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema includes two shorts packages and a main feature, all sharing unique stories which reveal the resilience of Indigenous people and the importance of protecting ancestral connections to country. Join us at ACME on Saturday the 10th of December for our first in-person screening since 2019. 
Tickets and passes on sale now at effa.org.au. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is a 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're just about to go to a segment from Homes Not Prisons, which is a series looking at carceral responses to poverty airing at midday on Thursdays. Now, for the last month, members of the Homes Not Prisons campaign have joined us on the airwaves to uh, discuss Sorry, to discuss the campaign, share stories, and encourage community alternatives to incarceration. So today we're going to be hearing from Nina. But just before we head to that, we might head to just one more CSA. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march, and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa, and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Hi everyone, welcome to 3CR. My name is Nina and this is my first time hosting on radio. So I'm feeling super excited to be with you today as you go about your day or as you're just chilling back and sitting at home. Stay tuned as we explore the intersections of poverty, homelessness and trauma and how these experiences often include an interception of time in prison. As a society, we focus on law and order responses to what are social and health issues which is why the carceral system continues to expand. We must come together to defund police, prisons and return the funding to communities as our first priority. Allowing and building capacity for services to support people in the reality of their complex lives, unlike the current climate of punitive and violent responses that continue to harm and abuse our most vulnerable people. So, a little bit about me. I'm a woman who has been criminalised and although that I've survived the violence that has been inflicted on me by the state and managed to keep myself away from the justice system, I continue to feel the effects of having been incarcerated and criminalised. Just this week I had to put in an application for my return residency visa and I'm fearful of what such a process looks like for me, especially after the recent deportation of people with criminal records. Now, as a member of the Steering Group of Homes Not Prisons campaign and a member of the National Network of Incarcerated Women and Girls, I had decided that today I would invite some other women with lived experience to speak to the topics of racial and classist discrimination and disadvantage. I would like to call out, however, that they were not able to be here today as their homeless status makes life extremely difficult and complicated for them to engage. For the others that you will be hearing from today, I want to say thank you. For your generous contributions, insights and qualified expertise and knowledge. I guess that's a perfect segue to talk about the mass incarceration of First Nations mob in Australia. In Victoria, there were 806 First Nations people in prison as of the end of October. Out of a total prison population of 6,717. That represents 12% of Victoria's prison population, 
while First Nations people make up just 1% of the total population of the state. Since October 2021, Victoria's prison population has increased by 1.2%, while the number of First Nations people in prison has jumped by 15% in this time. The imprisonment rate of First Nations people almost doubled from 2011 to 2021. Vicky Roach is one of these women. She has spent time in prison for social issues and being racially targeted. Aunt Vicky is a staunch Ewan woman who, along with her mother, was a member of the Stolen Generation. Vicky devotes her time to activism, advocacy around issues concerning First Nations women in prison, violence against women and deaths in custody. Vicky is especially energised by the current conversations around dismantling of the prison industrial complex and the defunding of police, and also sits on the steering group of Homes Not Prisons. I'm thrilled to be sharing her thoughts on the matter now. My name is Vicky Roach. I'm a, I'm a Ewan woman, and um, I'd like to, to pay my respects to and acknowledge the, the country I'm on and uh, the ancestors and traditional knowledge keepers of this land. The, the thing is, the expansion of prisons is, um, is happening not just in Victoria, but all over the country. The, the huge new prison being built up near Grafton. Now, DPFC, in the time that I was there, and I was released in 2008, they've just been given $25 million to um, upgrade the prison and... Um, yeah, we assumed that would be extra beds and things then, but it wasn't. The prison, they just built... Um, the, the program was called Better Pathways, and that's pretty much all we got out of it was some new pathways. They built a, a welfare building, whereas once you could just go and knock on the door and um, ask to see the welfare officer if she was there. You know, you could ask for yourself, have you got time or when can I come back? But this new building, they made it double storey and they put all the welfare workers upstairs behind a locked door and um, you had to go through a screw gatekeeper mm-hmm. to um, be able, she would decide whether your request to see a welfare officer was um, worthy or not, either making an appointment or not. So um, $25 million, the first thing they built to start with was a million-dollar recreational facility for the screws just outside the um, walls of the prison, which was apparently poorly patronised and uh, a big white elephant. Mm-hmm. So... I don't think expanding the prison or the money that they're they're putting up to expand the prison is well. Of course, it will be used to expand the prison, but that's not what needed. What's needed is the closure of that prison altogether, mm-hmm. of all prisons, in fact. Um, the expansion of DPSP corresponds with the number of women who are being criminalised 
and incarcerated for um, crimes of poverty, um, uh, breaches of breaches of orders, not even crimes, but mm-hmm. breaches of administrative orders. Um, it's unnecessary. Um, it will not do what the public thinks or is told it will do, which is keep them safe, because, like, you know, everybody gets out. And most women in prison have relatively short sentences. Mm-hmm. So this this whole campaign has been born out of that, the correlation between the need for housing, public housing, not social housing, not affordable housing, which is still unaffordable at 75% of the market income, uh, of the market um, price. Mm-hmm. Um, we need more public housing. And that, as um, Sarah said, is um, one of the greatest contributors to women being criminalised. Mm. A lot of people don't get their parole because they haven't got housing for them. And when they do find housing for people, it's usually in boarding houses that are full of people who have also just been released from prison um, or really crappy caravan parks and um, hotels that should really be condemned. Um, and these these things are not cheap. Um, they give you a couple of weeks free and then you're on your own. Um, there's housing is the key to pretty much everything. Everybody deserves the right to a, a, a roof over their heads. You know, everybody pays taxes. Look, we'll say, oh, but they're, they're on the door. Doesn't matter. We probably pay more tax than people who are employed or, or millionaires, for instance, mm. because we pay GST on every single thing we buy, every single thing that we use, our, our rent, our electricity, everything as GST built into it. So you can't tell us we're not taxpayers. Mm-hmm. And I firmly believe that having secure and affordable accommodation, and, and I don't mean what they think is affordable, mm-hmm. I, I mean what really is affordable. Public housing at the moment is affordable. It's 25% of your income. It's fixed. You know what it is, and it works. Um, we're just selling it all. We don't have any. Yeah. Um, and that's the problem. We're busy as, I'm nearly going to swear then, we're busy as building, you know, um, huge high-rises and investment properties. Um, and prison, but nobody's building a home that people can afford to live in. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's all about money. 
And while people are desperate, have nowhere to live, and no money, because of, you know, the various cuts, well, not cuts to um, welfare benefits, but the failure of, of welfare, well, look, why am I calling it welfare? It's social security, you know, that's afforded yeah. to everybody in this country. Exactly. Or is meant to be. It's social security. Um, and that's what we need to return to uh, as a country that believes in social security and, and that keeps society secure. And yeah. having a home is, is the one thing that will do that. What do we want? Homes are prisons! When do we want it? Now! You just heard from an expert from an interview with Nina from Homestop Prisons, which is a series also looking at carceral responses to poverty, airing at midday on Thursdays. For the last month of the Homestop Prisons campaign, they have joined us on 3CR to share their stories and encourage community alternatives to incarceration. You can also catch previous episodes at www.3cr.org.au forward slash acting up forward slash... So, and one final summer special episode on Thursday, December 22nd at midday. That's www.3cr.org.au slash acting up. Cool. And uh, now we're going to hear an interview that I did earlier. Oh, sorry. Last week with Dr. John Day, who's an adjunct senior research fellow at the ARC Center for Excellence in Coral Reef Studies at James Cook University. And we caught up to discuss a recently published reactive monitoring mission report by UNESCO's World Heritage Center and the International Union for the Conservation of Nature based on a March 2022 investigation into the health of the Great Barrier Reef. Now, this report included a recommendation that the Great Barrier Reef be put on the World Heritage in Danger list based on a significant decline in the reef's health over the past few decades. So John recently authored an article in the conversation on the current status of the Great Barrier Reef and some of the urgent actions required to protect it. And I thought it would be great to have a chat with him about this, considering he also has decades of experience in conservation on the reef and also in terms of looking at the World Heritage status of the reef. So here's that conversation. I thought we could start off by talking a bit about the Great Barrier Reef's significance as quite an exceptional area of this continent's coastal environment. So could you tell us about the importance of the reef's World Heritage listing and some of the responsibilities that are associated with the listing? Sure. Well, as you said, it's a, an amazing place. It's got um, biodiversity that's unmatched uh, in other coastal areas around the world. That's why it's been listed as a World Heritage uh, Area. Um, it's not the largest World Heritage Area on the planet, but it's probably one of the better known. Um, I think some people may be aware it stretches from the very tip of the Cape York in North uh, North Australia, right down near Bundaberg. But equally important, it's uh, cross shelf. It stretches from the low water mark on Queensland, way out beyond the edge of the continental shelf. So this is a huge area. Uh, to put it into context, it's bigger than Victoria and Tasmania combined, or it's bigger than Italy. So it really is a very large area. And within this very large area, the things that have been sort of recognised as being internationally significant, there are four what we call natural world heritage criteria. So things like it is significant for biodiversity, it's significant for ecological processes, it's um, aesthetically significant, it's got amazing uh, phenomena, and it's evolved over millennia. So they're the sort of things that are recognised internationally. So 
you know, it's right up there in, in uh, the list of natural world heritage properties, along with places like you know, Galapagos, the, the Grand Canyon. So it, it really is an iconic area. Um, it's also important to know that this is a world heritage list administered by UNESCO. So UNESCO um, is the is the keeper of the list, but it's based on an international treaty, the World Heritage Convention, which was adopted by UNESCO in 1972. So the reality is this is a, a global convention uh, recognising internationally important heritage areas, both natural and cultural. Yeah, so it, it seems then that um, apart from just being a beautiful and wonderful part of the environment and very important in terms of biodiversity. There are also very concrete international responsibilities uh, associated with it based on this listing. So both the World Heritage Committee and the Australian government have progressively been monitoring the reef, and this has shown quite a significant decline in its health over the past few decades. So what are some of the greatest threats that are facing the reef? And maybe you might like to include a reflection on your own view of the reef's decline based on your work over this time. Sure. Well, I think, as many people know, there are a whole range of threats facing the Great Barrier Reef, but not only the reef facing um, marine and, and natural areas right around the world. The most significant is obviously climate change, um, but also in the, in the case of the reef, because it's a coastal or has such a, a long coast, uh, water quality issues coming off the land, but also water quality issues arising in the sea from shipping, etc., but mainly from the land. Um, there are other many threats. One of the big ones talked about in the report was unsustainable fishing activities and unsustainable coastal development. But there are many, many others. I mentioned shipping. Um, shipping can have an impact. Um, there's a whole range of things. But the top four really are climate change, water quality, unsustainable fishing and unsustainable coastal development. The issue, I think, also is that these things are changing rapidly. So people can go out to the reef today and see coral and see fish and think, oh, that's okay. But if they were to talk to their parents or their grandparents who've been out there, they would have seen a very different Great Barrier Reef. So it's what we call a shifting baseline. And what we're also seeing is an area that's being impacted by many, many threats, as we talked about. Um, if you look at the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority's Outlook Report, which comes out every five years, they talk about 45 different threats some huge, some very minor, but all, all together. This is the problem. It's the cumulative impacts of all these threats together that's impacting the Great Barrier Reef. So, yeah, you asked about my sort of um, change over time. I first visited the reef in the, the mid-'80s, and uh, then it was a spectacular area. There were some areas that were going through uh, concerns. But today, with all these threats that we mentioned earlier, it's nothing like it was, unfortunately. So that's already a shifting baseline within my time. And unless we do act on things like reducing global emissions, then the future generations aren't going to get to see the reef like we did, which is really sad. So we do have an obligation uh, to try and do more to protect the reef. Yeah, of course. And I think um, the cumulative impacts that you mentioned is so important because it means that we can't just afford to address one or two things. It's really looking at a whole range of different uh, issues that need to be tackled at the same time. So the recently published reactive monitoring mission report by IUCN and UNESCO included the significant recommendation that the Great Barrier Reef should be inscribed on the list of world heritage in danger. So what would this designation mean and would it potentially have some bearing on action taken by both the federal and Queensland governments to protect the reef? Absolutely. Um, 
in terms of the World Heritage List in danger, this is a separate list kept by UNESCO. So they have a list of World Heritage and they have a list of World Heritage in danger. And there's currently, I think, about 50 properties on the World Heritage in danger list. And these are uh, places that have been recognised by UNESCO as having that list of values for which they are inscribed uh, being impacted. I want to stress that endangered listing is not a sort of a, a punishment or a sanction. It's a call to the international community to to um, recognise that these um, that that particular world heritage property is under threat, and it does require action to protect it for future generations. Now that action may be national action, it may be global action, but basically it's saying this important area is under threat. It's also not the first time the Great Barrier Reef has been um, you know, put on the uh, draft decision for a list of world heritage in danger. Um, this has happened a number of years. The first time, I think, was back in 2012. Um, and the other reality I think it's important is that this isn't just something coming from outside. The Australian government's own reports, I mentioned earlier, the Outlook Report, comes out every five years and the most recent one in 2019 rated the Great Barrier Reef as very poor and declining. So the government's own um, reports are talking about the, the threats to the reef. Um, so, you know, the government knows it. We know it. Uh, tourism industry knows it. We have to start um, recognising and addressing these issues. Otherwise, as I said earlier, the, the reef is not going to be there for future generations. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, the, the international scrutiny is an important part of this uh, to make sure that, you know, the government knows that there is, uh, you know, there's concerted international attention on the reef. Uh, so I thought we could maybe go into a little more detail on some of the key recommendations that have been made by the mission. So what are some of the most urgent actions they've identified to mitigate uh, some of the threats to the reef that we've discussed? Well, um, they made 12, sorry, uh, 22 recommendations, 10 priority ones and, and a further 12. They can sort of be grouped into four broad areas and it makes, the report makes it very clear that climate change is the biggest threat. So it does mean that, you know, Australia should be showing more leadership in reducing its greenhouse gas emissions. Um, we're one of the top exporters of fossil fuels and whilst the new government has moved to legislate a stronger emission reduction target, um, we just heard just recently that perhaps we might, might not meet that. So the clear indication from the scientific experts, unless we meet the 1.5 degree uh, warming uh, threshold, then we won't see coal reefs in the future. So climate change is clearly the, the number one issue. But in terms of other important ones, it, the uh, report talks about the water quality issues. This is a whole range, again, of, of um, concerns reducing sediment coming off the land that impacts uh, particularly the inshore areas, and then that sediment can be resuspended and moved up and down the coast. And so we've got to um, work closely with uh, the farmers and the people in the catchments to reduce that sediment, reduce fertiliser use. There's a whole range of water quality things, and the unfortunate um, outcome is the government has set water quality targets, but they aren't um, meeting those targets, their own monitoring is showing we're failing to meet those targets. So we need to put a lot more effort. The, the government is currently spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to address that. But I think the concern is that we have in many places regulations, but not everyone's adhering to what needs to be best practice. Um, there are other issues in the report. It talks about more sustainable fisheries. Um, 
it was a Queensland sustainable fishing strategy that has to be implemented uh, properly to ensure that we have a sustainable fishery. The report is also quite clear on one of the more destructive fisheries because there's a whole range of commercial and recreational um, charter and indigenous types of fishing. But the commercial gillnet fishery is one that the report comes out and says should be phased out over time because these gillnets actually catch things like dugong and dolphin and turtles. So the UN mission made a very strong recommendation of phasing that out. But it goes on and talks about things like monitoring the bycatch, the things that are caught by these fisheries that aren't their primary um, target. The uh, fourth broad, broad area they talk about is, is uh, things like impacts of dredge swirl. Um, we have dredging occurring in shipping channels and ports along the coast. And whilst uh, this is an essential part of, of maintaining our ports, what we do with that dredge spoil is really of critical importance because in the past we used to dump it in the sea where it could be, uh, then be easily resuspended by waves and, and currents and spread onto nearby corals. So these areas are already under stress, as we said, from climate change, so we have to minimise this. There's other things that the government has approved, and that's uh, building reclamation areas. And the two big ones are in Townsville Port and Gladstone Port. Um, so the um, government brought in a, a new policy saying we wouldn't be dumping what we call capital dredge spoil. That's areas that weren't previously dredged in the in the marine park. And so they're now dumping that uh, behind a reclamation. So it's still effectively in the uh, marine area. They're just creating port land out of effectively what was World Heritage Land. So we've got issues with both dumping maintenance dredge spoil, the fine stuff out at sea, and the uh, use of dredge spoil for reclamation. Both these are causing adverse impacts. So it's a whole range of things, uh, Priya, as you said before, that I talked about, but those are four sort of broad areas. Yeah, and I think when you mentioned the cumulative impacts before, it really seems to map onto these issues around enforceability of regulations that are already in place or, uh, you know, new things that might need to be drawn up in relation to some of these uh, new or more newly identified concerns. Uh, so finally, I understand that the Australian government already has a long-term plan in place to protect the Great Barrier Reef, so that's the Reef 2050 plan. But what's your assessment of the adequacy of this plan as well as the sort of political will when it comes to delivering these missions recommendations? Well, the plan, as you said, has been in place um, since the, the reef curse first came under the spotlight from uh, the World Heritage Committee. Um, the reef 2050 plan is continually being updated and improved, but uh, unfortunately, as I said before, the government's own monitoring is showing we're not meeting the targets set out in either the plan itself or in uh, other uh, documents that go with it. I think we need better plans, uh, sorry, better targets that are measurable. We need to scale up our efforts. So whilst we're doing some good things in small areas, when we're talking about an area the size of the reef, we need to scale up. And the other important thing we mentioned earlier was the need to bring in better uh, compliance. We have regulations on things like uh, clearing of, of catchment areas, regulations on fisheries. All these need to be properly enforced to get in compliance to meet the, uh, you know, in, the intention of the regulations. So government is is uh, very good at saying, yes, we're spending lots of money and we are doing lots of things, but their own monitoring is showing that we're not achieving the targets that we've set ourselves. So the reef 
is being impacted. We say death by a thousand cuts. It's being impacted by this range, wide range of issues, which cumulatively are impacting the overall reef. Um, as I said, the, the government's own five yearly outlook report has, has indicated this. So, um, we, we definitely need to do more. We need to be more effective. Otherwise, as I said earlier, we're not going to see the Great Barrier Reef and what we've come to, to love. And certainly future generations will wonder why we didn't take the action at the time when we knew the problems. John, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, take us through this and, you know, parse out some of this World Heritage listing and the in danger or potential in danger status and to also tell us about what needs to be done. Thanks, Priya. Well, I'll just finish off. You know, in danger listing is not going to fix the problem but it'll certainly bring a much greater spotlight onto the actions that are required. And as I said, these actions need to be at both national and global levels. But, um, you know, we all have a, a role. Everyone can do something to help protect the reef right down to how we deal, you know, day to day with the issues that lead to, um, you know, greater problems for, for uh, climate and, and sustainability. But yes, world heritage in danger is an important part to focus the concerns of the Great Banner Reef. Of course. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Bria. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was a conversation that I had with Dr. John Day, who's an adjunct senior research fellow at the ARC Center for Excellence in uh, Coral Reef Studies at James Cook University. And John and I caught up to discuss a recently published reactive monitoring mission report by UNESCO's World Heritage Center and the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which was based on a recent investigation into the health of the reef. And it included a recommendation that the reef be put on the World Heritage in Danger list based on a significant decline in its health over the past few decades. And John has also recently authored an article in the conversation on the status of the Great Barrier Reef and some of the urgent actions required to protect it. And we'll have a link to that in our show notes. Now, I believe we are going to a track. We are going to go to a track. This is called Do It Again by A Girl, which has a beautiful cover, might I add. And it's so beautiful that uh, it's not playing. So give us just a moment. Hi, my name is John A. Tate, and I've collected hundreds of songs about footy and sport. So we've put together a program called The Sporting Record. Hang on, it's not all about your records, John A. Em and I are also here to cast a critical 3CR eye over all things sport. Join John, James and me every Thursday at 4pm for The Sporting Record, right here on 855 3CR. Kicking off on Thursday, August 25th at 4 o'clock.
my impression lately Pics that I be posting up on my Insta mainly Look me in my eyes, I can feel that Sparks are in the air, can you feel that? In another world, when the wind you know you feel that In another world with you, cause yeah Cause baby you won't down for love Even though I know you Know you wanna do it again, do it again Maybe when you back down for love I can let you I can let you do it again, do it again, do it again When the light that you took a chance on me right now Hypothetically speaking, I let your guard down And when he was working, when he was perfect It's just a start, it's scratch the surface Only one man I that could hold you down Only one man I wanna hold my pound One of many reasons I keep you around, around. Cause baby, you won't back down for love Even though I know you Know you wanna do it again, do it again That was Do It Again by A Girl, and in the spirit of the song, we will do it again by playing another song right after this CSA. Make your gift-giving meaningful this year with a festive gift from Children's Ground. A First Nations-led organization, Children's Ground creates holistic, long-term change with First Nations children, their family, and community. Choose from gifts designed by Children's Ground artists or our change-making digital gift cards. You'll receive a digital card to email or to print at home. It's the gift that's guaranteed to arrive on time. Go to childrensground.org.au to shop or learn more. Children's Ground is a 3CR supporter. And next up, we are going to the track Real Nice, HCTF, by Young Franco, TK Madster and Nerve. Future. Look, I'm in it, look nice. Look, nice, 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 nice,
Moving tactical, moving, making packs and radical. Always maximum and past the capital. Never rational, no, this talent matching. Yo, got a problem. Confidence, I'm better than it, how to grow it. Taking every opportunity you show in. Ain't about to let a non-believer blow it. That track got you going this morning. That was Real Nice by Young Franco, TK Mazda and Nerve. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Panoply, Panorama, Panpipe... Pansy? Aha! Pansexual. Knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope... Only on 3CR, 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays.
3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How can people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent Women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Now we'll be joined by Tim Manfato, an organiser for the United Workers' Union. Tim joins us to speak about the food manufacturing workers from Pampas and Melbourne who rallied outside Baker's Delight to highlight the company's unwillingness to provide secure work. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Tim. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. No, of course. Well, I think we'll start off with, you know, more than 50 United Workers Union members from Pampas began strike action on Monday following the Baker's Delight's refusal to provide direct hire, permanent jobs, coupled with a wage offer that fell way below inflation. Could you tell us a little bit more about what kind of, like, insecure work these workers are experiencing? Yeah, of course. Um, Look, it's a really great question. I think um, sort of something that goes hidden a lot of the time in the food and beverage manufacturing industry where what happens is the company will have um, a group of workers who are often long-term, you know, permanent um, workers, so either full-time or part-time, and they're paid according to the enterprise bargaining agreement that the company negotiates with, with the union on the site, right? Um, but then on top of that, what they do is they'll have a pool of workers who work for a labour hire, um, you know, labour hire uh, casual agency. So they're, they're employed as casuals, and it means that they are on um, minimum, minimum wage, right? They're paid on the award. Um, now, it's very, very normal in the industry to bring people in as labour hire agency casuals. What it isn't normal to see is people who have been in those arrangements for 20-plus for, for years, right? So that is the case at Panthers. There are some really, really, really long-term um, workers who are still casual, still working with labour hire agencies, um, and they're alongside people who do the exact same job as them, being paid, you know, 5 6 7 uh, or $8 more per hour than them, and they have job security. They have sick leave, annual leave, all the rest. Um, so it's a clearly unfair situation. We want to change it. We want to see um, particularly the really long-term um, labour hire agency casuals converted to be permanent workers. Um, and the other thing at Pampers as well is uh, use of ongoing 12-month contracts. Um, we think that's also unfair. Essentially, you have, have a cloud hanging over your head. You know, in 12 months, your job is completely on the line. Um, that's not on. People who do five days a week, they've done so for several years, um, they know what they're doing on site. They don't need to be on, on continual contracts. They need to just be made permanent workers at Panthers and have that job security that everyone else there has. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having you know 12-month contracts that roll over and then you feel insecure at the end of that 12 months and then being there for like also 20 years and experiencing so much casualization um, when everybody's doing the same job. That's really, really yeah. disappointing. Uh, following on from this, could you tell us maybe what, the workers are really asking for, particularly to keep up with inflation at the moment? Yeah, of course. So, 
Um, the company has offered a 4% wage increase over two years. Now, we know that inflation is soaring above 7% at the moment. I believe interest rates have just gone up again or have been advised to be put up again uh, in the last week or few weeks. Um, and so 4% just doesn't cut it, right? Uh, 12 months ago or two years ago, that would have been an above inflation pay increase, and that's just not the case anymore. So these workers have made more products than ever across um, all of the COVID lockdowns we had, they came into work putting their families and communities and themselves at risk um, through lockdowns, through outbreaks on site, etc. Um, and they've made the company a lot of money in that time. So they're just asking for, for some reward, um, you know, for, for the labour that they've done to make so much money for the company. So essentially what they're asking for, um, what United Workers Union members are asking for at Pampas is a 6% wage increase per year across three years, but each year 6%. Um, they're also asking, yeah, obviously for, for more secure um, permanent work on site, so that means conversions for um, labour hire agency casuals after a certain amount of time and the ending of the use of contracts. So it's those two key things that the workers are fighting for out there. Yeah, it sounds like they have made so much money and you shouldn't have to, you know, prove that you're worthy, but really it's just the fact that this is reward for security <laughs> and yeah, yeah. you know keeping up with appropriate living standards um that's really yeah it's it's really disappointing to know that that has been so challenging to get from them and i think also what what do you think has i, I guess is getting in the way of workers getting fair pay or better contracts like is it the owners is it the company is it poor legislation what's going on yeah, I think that that's a really, really interesting question. I, I was glad, um, really glad to have been asked that. I think that there's been a lot of discussion, you know, over the last week or so um, in relation to changes to legislation and that kind of thing, right? So obviously our um, bargaining period begun before any changes to legislation, so we're still operating under the current Fair Work Act um, at Pampas in terms of our of our bargaining out there. Um, I think that, that, to be honest, the key thing isn't anything higher um, than the company itself, then Goodman Fielder, um, which owns Pampas and owns a range of other food and beverage manufacturing um, facilities throughout Australia, um, it's actually just their unwillingness to come to the table at this point and say, look, we're listening to you guys, we're coming to the table and we're willing to change the way the workplace runs and we're willing to offer more. Um, the reality is is that the company, yeah, as they've as discussed, it makes a lot of money. Um, billions of dollars go to its parent company overseas, Wilmar International um, which is based in Singapore. It's one of the largest agribusinesses in the world. Um, and essentially, they've made the decision. They've made this decision to say, look, we're not going to listen. We're not going to come to the bargaining table and we're going to force our workers to stand up for themselves and take action and go out on strike. Um, so I think, you know, the, the key thing is, yeah, the company itself is just saying, no, we're not going to listen um, to to what is right and what is fair and we're going to force our workers to, to stand up and, and take strike action. Um, but I think in terms of legislation, look, I obviously can't speak for, for what's before Parliament and what's just been passed by Parliament, but all of these sort of arrangements with long-term labour hire agency casuals or, you know, several different rates of pay on the same work site, that's all completely legitimate before the eyes of the law. So I think in terms of, um, you know, changing that, it can be changed through EBA bargaining, and that's exactly what we're seeking to do. Yeah, EBA bargaining takes so much... <laughs> Um, yeah. So much strength and solidarity, but it's so incredibly important because that can have huge long-term effects as well. Um, I also wanted to ask, because I know that the strike actually is 
you've said also in the media release it's actually kind of unusual for its kind. Could you tell us a little bit more about why that is, particularly since everybody's being paid at different rates? Yeah, look, I think what's unusual about it is is the fact that it's going on for this long. And I think that, you know, we're in a situation where the company could have resolved this weeks ago and has chosen to not do so. Um, And I think that, you know, workers coming together, whether they're agency casual, you know, labour hire workers or permanent workers, um, and saying we're going to spend upwards of two weeks. It's now um, almost at the three-week mark, um, standing up in defiance of what this global multinational has offered them, which is subpar, um, that's pretty special. So I think, um, yeah, in terms of being unusual, it's definitely um, dragging out longer than it needs to, um, but that's a decision that's been made by the company and by the managers who are responsible, um, and our members are continued, uh, you know, prepared to continue the fight until this, is, until this is won, until this has been through. That is incredibly admirable and brave, and... Um I wish, you know, no workers ever had to do that, but being able to come together despite your casual or part-time or what situation you're in and fighting for the rights together is so, yeah, it's so incredibly wonderful. Um, and, you know, solidarity to all the workers in the fight for secure and even pay and working conditions. Could you tell us maybe more about how we can, like, really support or follow along with what's happening? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the key channel to be looking at is all of the, the United Workers Union social media pages. So that's across that Facebook, um, Twitter and Instagram. Um, on those, you'll see um, that our members are going out and targeting um, some of the, the customer companies of Pampas, of Goodman Fielder. So that includes, you know, Baker's Delight, as you mentioned earlier, with a lot of their um, bakery products that aren't actually made in Baker's Delight. They do come from, um, from the Pampas site. Um, but also, um, yesterday we had a national day of action out at Zambrero where we, um, you know, targeted them because, you know, they purport to be an ethical company. Um, the Pampas workers actually make the, the wraps that go into Zambrero's Mexican. So, um, you'll see a lot of information about the sort of, um, action that we're taking and the pressure that we're putting on, um, on the, you know, the companies that purchase from Goodman Fielder and from Pampers. Um, so that's really important to keep up to date with that. But there are two key things people can do to help at the moment. There is a petition directly to um, the CEO of Goodman Fielder Australia. So signing that and showing that there is a lot of public support for these workers is really crucial. Um, and that can be found on United Workers Union social media. And the second thing which can also be found on, on UW socials is um, the strike fund. So obviously going on strike means you're not getting paid. So people are making really tough decisions and making sacrifices to continue to fight for what's right. And members are prepared to continue doing that, but they do need support, right? And so that comes in the form of people donating to, to our trust funds that we've set up um, and us being able to use that to support our members um, to continue this fight because it's really important um, and the members are absolutely determined to continue it, but obviously they can't do it without help from the broader community. Amazing. We'll definitely be sure to link all of that in our show notes as well. Is there anything else that you would like to add just before we go? Yeah, absolutely. I think the final thing I'd like to say is, you know, something that's been really special for for myself and and for the members and any visitors to the picket line um, to witness has just been the level to which the members have come together um, they're absolutely supporting each other um, in incredible ways. A lot of members who, you know, were quiet and 
you know, often, I think, you know, quite intimidated by management at the work site, have now really found a voice. And, you know, every day there's music, there's drums, there's incredible food from all around the world being cooked and prepared by the members. Um, there's an incredible vibe and energy and atmosphere down there. The members have, you know, while they're going through this situation, they've, they've really come together as a community and it's a really special thing to come down and see. So if anyone wants to come and visit the picket line, it is 24-hour um, any guests who drop in and, and show their support are really, really welcomed and appreciated by the members. Um, it's at 2 Carajong Street in West Footscray. Um, we definitely encourage people to come down and visit and, and see this incredible energy and incredible atmosphere and community um, for themselves, which, which you know, our members have forged down there as they're fighting for what's right. That is really, really special and so beautiful and solidarity to all the workers and we will have all the information in the show notes as well. But thank you so much for joining us here today, Tim, and taking the time out. Thanks so much for having us. Really appreciate it. You just heard from Tim Benfato, who is an organiser for the United Workers' Union, and he joins us today to speak about the food manufacturing workers from Pampas in Melbourne who rallied outside Baker's Delight to highlight their company's unwillingness to provide secure work. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're going to head to another track. This is a new one from Jen Clower, Being Human.
us for the 2022 edition of The Change, Definitions of Freedom. Interactive Theatre, 7 to 9pm on the 16th of December at the Honda Showrooms, Hoddle Street. We're also having an exhibition and preview from 5pm Thursday, 24th of November at the store, Abbotsford Convent. Find out more on Facebook at The Change Definitions of Freedom. The Change is presented by United Struggle Project, a 3CR supporter. Robbie Thorpe. I'm doing Black and Deadly on Fridays from 11 to 12 o'clock. Looking at all the best uh, Black and Deadly music, entertainers, and performers around this country. Uh, join me then from 11 to 12 Fridays, Community Radio, Thresia, 8:55 on the AM dial. Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and you just heard the new track from Jen Clower, Being Human. The Australian Centre for International Justice, ACIJ, is a newly established independent not-for-profit and specialist legal centre working to develop Australia's capacity to investigate and prosecute atrocity crimes. Today, Acting Executive Director Fiona Nelson joins us to discuss ACIJ's recent report assessing Australia's response to the Afghanistan inquiry. The report, released on November 29, found that Australia has failed to action recommendations on redress for victims of war crimes by Australian special forces. Fiona Nelson has previously worked as a researcher in international law at the University of Potsdam. She has spent time as legal advisor in the International Crimes and Accountability Program for the Berlin-based NGO European Centre for Constitutional and Human Rights, taking part in legal actions concerning states' complicity in unlawful drone strikes in Yemen, torture in Guantanamo and CIA black sites, as well as the abuse of detainees during the Iraq war. Listeners, please be advised that the following conversation may contain references to and descriptions of war and military violence. Good morning, Fiona. Thank you so much for joining us on Thursday Breakfast today. Um, We've got a lot to cover today, so I thought we could just get straight into it. Good morning. Yes, sounds good. Um, So first of all, I was wondering if you could provide some background on the findings and recommendations of the 2020 Afghanistan Inquiry, also known as the Burton Report. Yes, so the Afghanistan Inquiry was an inquiry run by the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force, and they were tasked with examining rumours that were circulating about serious misconduct, including war crimes by Australia's special forces in Afghanistan. 
They spent four years working and interviewed over 400 witnesses. And then in 2020, a redacted version of their report was published. So one of the main findings of that report was that these rumours of war crimes were, in many cases, substantiated by the evidence. Um, They found that there was credible evidence of um, 23 incidents in which uh, civilians or detainees were unlawfully killed by Australian forces. This was about 39 victims in total. And it's important to point out these are not battlefield killings. These were mostly people who'd been captured by Australian forces. And as we know, harming or killing prisoners can amount to the war crime of murder. And the report also found there was information uh, suggesting uh, detainees were subjected to cruel treatment. It found some serious failures in the special forces that these... um, you know, reports of these incidents were often embellished, sometimes completely fabricated in order to make it look like nothing unlawful had occurred. Mm. Um, And, yeah, just a key finding was also that the inquiry found that there was a practice um, known as blooding, which was where junior soldiers mm. were required to shoot a prisoner in order to sort of achieve their first kill, as it were. Yeah, that... There were some really deeply troubling findings in that report. Um, And now, two years on, ACIJ have looked into the implementation of the recommendations provided by this inquiry. Could you briefly outline the key findings from this ACIG report that was released last week? Yes, absolutely. So we looked into the various processes that are happening in Australia to respond to these findings. And we found that on the criminal justice aspect, there has been progress. So there's been a special unit set up. It's called the Office of the Special Investigator. And they're looking into criminal investigations into some of these matters and other potential war crimes. And it's making progress. And it's possible that we'll see some movement towards prosecutions next year. But on the reparations and redress and compensation side of things, we've seen absolutely no progress. We know it was not a priority for the previous government. So shortly after the Burrison report came out, former Prime Minister Scott Morrison indicated that his government was not really considering the compensation issue. So we've seen total inaction on this. Um, and in our report, we set out the fact that you know there are legal obligations on, on Australia to provide for reparations for victims. So it's not just a matter of, you know... Uh, choosing to do so. Rather, it has to meet its obligations on redress. Mm. Yeah, so I did read the report. I found it it was reasonably accessible um, and really informative, but I don't think I would have been able to kind of find that if I wasn't actively looking for it. Um, And I just wanted to now focus on some details that stood out to me. So firstly, it seems like a major flaw in Australia's implementation of the Afghanistan inquiry is in a marked failure to centre victims and victim communities. Could you speak to ACIJ's recommendations for redress and the importance of keeping victims informed of and engaged with judicial proceedings here in Australia? Yes, so those are key findings for us. Um, On your question on redress, it's crucial we think that Australia consults with victims and their communities in Australia, in Afghanistan as to what kind of form reparations could take. 
it could be compensation, but it could also be different types of reparation because it's those communities who will know best what it is that they need and what justice will look like for them. And then looking at other aspects of the government's response, we've seen very few efforts to keep people from Afghanistan informed of what's happening in Australia. And we see this as a bit of a missed opportunity because for a very long time, the conflict in Afghanistan has been marked by almost total impunity for wrongdoing. So people from all sides of the conflict who've been committing uh, horrendous human rights abuses have been facing no consequences. And we know from our colleagues who've been working on these issues on justice and reconciliation in Afghanistan for a long time, we know that this sort of situation of just general impunity really contributed to the overall instability of the country. So I think what's happening in Australia now is really important because Australia is one of the few places where there is a chance to challenge this impunity for um, human rights violations in Afghanistan over the years. But these processes can only be meaningful to people from Afghanistan if they know about it. Mm. So we've been calling on Australia to start thinking about an outreach strategy so that as these processes progress, as perhaps there are trials, that communities who are interested, and especially people from Afghanistan, can learn about what's happening. Mm. So just in follow-up to that, can you describe what maybe some of those outreach strategies could potentially look like? Is Has there been anything suggested in particular by ACIJ about how to, um, you know, go about that on the ground? Well, I think the first step is to talk to interested communities from Afghanistan who are in Australia mm-hmm. um, and to start making connections there. Um, and then to think about how to communicate what's happening in criminal proceedings. Um, and that will mean, you know, learning to communicate in different languages, putting information out there, um, and, you know, to not simply rely on journalists to get the word out, but rather to be proactive about it. We see units in other countries, sort of investigative units in other countries, when they're looking at complex international crimes, Some of those do make efforts to really communicate to the affected communities, and that's best practice, and that's what we'd like to see happening in Australia as well. Yeah, yeah, that's something that I'd definitely like to see in future. So next, I want to address the limitations of reform when addressing systemic issues that led to such gross violations by Australian special forces in Afghanistan could you unpack concerns with the defence response's bottom-up bottom up approach to rep- reforms and how ongoing investigations could address systemic and cultural problems more effectively, including how Australia could meet any relevant international agreements? Yeah, it's a big question. Um in international criminal law, the focus is generally on examining, you know, the liability borne by those people most responsible for the crime. So rather than punishing only lower level soldiers, you need to look up the chain of command to see if there are also failures there of commanders to punish or to prevent these crimes. On this issue of command responsibility, the Brereton report did talk about how more senior persons um, bear moral command responsibility for the failures, but that sort of glosses over the fact that actually command responsibility is also a legal obligation, it's also a legal doctrine. So it'll be important for the Australian criminal investigations to also 
properly investigate that. Um, sort of a failure, if, if Australia fails to to investigate that issue, um, that will be a yeah failure of its international obligations. So currently, there's a there's an investigation happening at the International Criminal Court into various different crimes that have um, been committed in Afghanistan over the past two decades or so. Now, the focus for the moment there is on crimes by the Taliban, but it's possible that the prosecutor there could also look into um, war crimes by Australian forces in the future. And Australia can avoid that happening by doing very comprehensive um, investigations here that are in line with those kinds of international standards. Mm. Yeah, I think a big takeaway from that section of the report for me was how the bureaucracy of war lends itself to exploitation when concealing or deflecting responsibility for these crimes. And it's really important that we do look at the system as a whole and not just kind of these lower level individuals that have been, they're the majority of um, individuals that have been implicated that we know of at the moment. So, yeah, finally... An ongoing issue outlined in the ACIG report is the lack of public transparency from the AFP on investigations into war crimes in Afghanistan. I was wondering if you have any suggestions on how listeners and community can stay informed on these topics or even take action, and what can we do as a community in Australia? Yeah, great question. Um, I suppose as a starting point, listeners could go to the website of our centre, the Australian Centre for International Justice, that's acija.org.au, and we've got some information there in English and in Dari and in Pashto on some of these processes that we've been chatting about today. A lot of what we do know about the AFP's work on this issue is thanks to the work of investigative journalists who've really been so key in bringing all of this stuff to light. And we also know some things from freedom of information requests that we filed. So we'll continue to work to sort of undermine the secrecy around those investigations mm. so that those people who are interested can can understand what progress is being made. Like I said earlier, I suppose these processes can only be meaningful and um, impactful for Australia and for Afghanistan if people know what's happening. Yeah, that's right. And I think that this issue is deeply important to a lot of the public and it's a real failure that we don't have more access to transparent information. Um, but I guess this is, this is a step towards that. So thank you so much for sharing your time today, Fiona. It's been great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. See ya. We just heard from Fiona Nelson, who is the Acting Executive Director of ACIG, and today Fiona joined us to discuss their recent report assessing Australia's response to the Afghanistan inquiry. The report released last week found that Australia has largely failed to action recommendations on redress for victims of war crimes by Australian Special Forces. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. The sun is shining, or at least it's attempting to, so get your picnic blankets out and gather your mates and stock up on your summer wine. We're so excited that our summer wine fundraiser is back. 
This year we're selling delicious wine generously provided by 3CR supporter Jamsheed Wines. Just $20 per bottle or you can snap up even more of a bargain by buying in a dozen or half dozen lots and mixes. Order online 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or call the station on 9419 8377 during business hours. Jamsheed Wines is a 3CR supporter. And we are coming up to time uh, on this episode of Thursday Morning Breakfast. And uh, for listeners who, uh, I don't know, tune in every Thursday, I hope that a lot of you do tune in every Thursday. Just a heads up that next week is going to be our last live show for uh, 2022. Um, so, you know, if you uh, if you follow us on socials and you really want something covered live before we go on our break and hit you with our incredibly curated summer programming, um, let us know. You can contact us at uh, at 3CR Thursday Breakfast on Instagram. Uh, so maybe we'll go through a bit of what we covered today. So first up, we heard from Nina, who's a member of the Homes Not Prisons campaign. And over the past month, uh, the Homes Not Prisons campaign have joined us on the airwaves to share through a series of uh, through a series of interviews looking at the carceral responses to poverty on midday on Thursdays, some of their stories, and to encourage community alternatives to incarceration. And you can catch previous episodes at 3cr.org.au forward slash acting up. And there's going to be one final summer special episode that's going to air on Thursday, the 22nd of December at midday. And then after that... Um, we heard an interview that I did last week with Dr. John Day, who's an adjunct senior research fellow at the ARC Center for Excellence in Coral Reef Studies at James Cook University. And we talked about the reactive monitoring mission report that was recently published by UNESCO's World Heritage Center and the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which is based on an investigation earlier this year into the health of the Great Barrier Reef, and which included a recommendation that the Great Barrier Reef be put on the World Heritage in Danger list based on a significant decline in its health over the past few decades. And then we were joined by Tim Bonfato, who's an organizer for the United Workers' Union. And Tim joins us to speak about the really incredible work that food manufacturing workers from Pampas in Melbourne um, are doing outside of Baker's Delight to highlight the company's unwillingness to provide secure work. And finally, we were joined by Acting Executive Director Fiona Nelson from ACIJ, the Australian Centre for International Justice, which is a newly established, independent, not-for-profit and specialist legal centre working to develop Australia's capacity to investigate and prosecute atrocity crimes. Today, Fiona joined us to discuss their recent report assessing Australia's response to the Afghanistan inquiry. Yeah, and uh, finally today, I just want to let people know that today, the thurs- uh, Thursday, the 8th of December, the Victorian Pride Centre are going to be holding a community event in St Kilda at 6.30 p.m., but unfortunately, there have been credi- credible threats uh, by Nazis and Proud Boys, and the organisers, performers, and the council have also been made aware of these threats, um, but community members are encouraged to, uh, you know, attend uh, to peacefully defend that uh, that event uh, and for people to arrive in groups, uh, bring only themselves flags and their support 
um, to, you know, stand in solidarity with members of the Victorian Pride Centre at 81 Fitzroy Street, St Kilda, um, this evening. And, yeah, that'll be at 6.30 p.m. So really encourage people that support queer folks um, and members of our community to uh, attend that, to stand in peaceful solidarity against, uh, you know, fascist violence. And, yeah, this is just once again a reminder that this stuff does not go away on its own. We cannot rely on just forgetting and suppressing these kinds of issues and pretending that they're going to dissolve without active community action and rallying to support. So please, if you can, head down to St Kilda this evening to peacefully stand in solidarity with the Victorian Pride Centre and really, you know, show that this community cares about queer and trans folks. So that's about all we have time for today on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we will catch you next week. Bye. 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 CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.